You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, where it's all about helping you grow your Denver real estate portfolio. Here's your host, Chris Lopez. So in April, I was really excited to publish the 2020 edition of the Denver Real Estate Investing Strategies book. Now, this book is a crowdsourced book that will get published every single year. And I'm a big believer in writing down goals and strategies and then action plans and executing them. So part of the reason I write it is for myself so I can articulate my goals and execute them. But I also really enjoy reading and learning from other investors. So throughout the book, or most of the book is made up of other people writing their investing strategies as well. We have about 20 or 21 investors in this book. So it had a great turnout this year. So it's a great way to learn and network with other investors here in Denver. So my original plan was to have a launch party, like an in-person launch, launch party to hang out and network with contributors. Well, you all know of the COVID pandemic and that obviously changed the plans. So since in-person events are off the table, I decided to switch to doing interviews on the podcast with a lot of the book contributors. So during these podcast interviews, I'll be discussing their strategy and how the pandemic has changed their investing plans. So to get the most out of these podcasts, I'd recommend you grab a copy of the book. You can go to Amazon and search for the 2020 Guide to Denver Real Estate Investing Strategies, and it'll pop up, or go to the show notes and the link will be there. You can buy it in paperback or Kindle. Now, also during these interviews, I'll have a guest co-host with me on most of these. And today for the first interview, I have Terrence Doyle as my guest co-host. So over the last couple of years, Terrence and I do a lot of like masterminding together. And he also shares my interest in making goals and then executing on them. So he is a multifamily investor here in Denver. Terrence, I'm glad to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to talk to some of the authors in the book and specifically Joe today. I've actually known Joe for a couple of years, but we've never actually spent a lot of time together just from different people in, inside the uh, York Castle family. And so, yeah, I'm stoked to learn more about your story, your investment strategy and talk through your chapter. Great. Yeah. I'm excited to have you or that you guys are having me here today. Thanks yeah, so much. So I think most of you guys know who Joe Massey is. He is a, a legend. on the podcast a lot. He's an investor. He's a great lender here in town. I mean, so Joe, let's just jump into it. You're in... One of these chapters in the book here. I'm, I'm in the back, chapter uh, 23. I'm we like, want alphabetical. Close to the alphabetical. Oh, I should, be, so, I should be somewhere that. in the middle. And that surprisingly, <laughs> it was very stacked towards the front. Okay, yeah, um, great. Yeah, but so give everyone the quick recap on just what your, what your investing strategy is. Yeah, so my strategy, um, you know, I work in a pretty volatile business, right? Mortgage lending, just like a lot of jobs, is commission-based, um, can be up and down. I've been doing it a long time. It's pretty stable for me, but there's still good months, bad months, times when you're not sure, holy cow, um, how can we handle all the business that's coming in? Or holy cow, where are we going to get our next transaction from? So because of that, I really view my job as being pretty high risk um, from a cash flow standpoint. So a lot of people say, hey, you want to have a balance of high-risk investment and low-risk investments. Well, for me, I err towards having a little bit more lower-risk or medium-risk investments because in my overall life, my job is pretty high-risk. So I don't want to take a lot of risk with my investments. I like to have a little bit safer investments, um, when, whether that's stocks, bonds, mutual funds, whatever. I don't look for things that are super high return 
because I get a good return on my my job, but that comes with a lot of risk. So what I look for is pretty medium run-of-the-mill transactions. And my long-term goal is I want to get to where I have $20,000 a month of passive income. Now, that could be from real estate. That could be from annuities. That could be from dividends. That could be from social security. And most likely, it's going to be some combination of all of these things. That's the main thing we're looking for, my, my wife and I, is at some point, we're going to want to retire and not have to show up and, and do loans every day and can you know turn that business over to a younger person on my team. And the way to do that, I don't think, is going to be just simply putting X number of dollars in the bank and then withdrawing on it. For me, I want to have X number of dollars in various accounts, various real estate assets, and then have those assets generating passive cash flow. Um, and that's something that I'm, I'm really focused on and I touch on in the book is it's not withdrawing money from your principal, but is it truly generating $20,000 a month in that passive cash flow without tapping into the principal? Um, so that's kind of the high level, low risk, medium, well, medium risk, and uh, generate some passive cash flow. So I'm going to let you jump in on some questions here, Terrence, because you know I, I talk with you all the time. I talk with Joe all the time. And you guys like, you know, wave to each other in a hallway right now and then. That's right. But you, yeah. got, you, know, you got some questions for yeah. Joe, so you take the lead, man. Yeah, so I just want to, to the first paragraph of your book and the first sentence you said, a couple key phrases, which was high risk and volatile in your industry. And although that seems very fundamental and kind of like, duh, um, I don't, I've never looked at like, different careers and industries that way. But I think that it's really pivotal when you start talking about investment strategy to first of all, start with, okay, what's my what's my core business that just brings home the paycheck? And let me define that. Mm -hmm. So walk me through the thought process of how you got to defining that. And then for listeners, like what would be the way that you would help them define what they're in? Because I think that's like the first thing that we should start with is define the industry you're in. Yeah. And is it high risk, low risk, medium risk? And then from there, get into an investment strategy. So I thought that that was very, very compelling thought and uh, and I really enjoyed it, but I wanted to see you unpack that a little bit for me. Yeah. So I've been in the mortgage industry since 2002 and guess what happened in 2002, three, four, five. It was the greatest time in the mortgage industry ever at the time. And we thought it was going to go forever. Right. Now I was getting into that and I was like, holy cow, this is, this is a great job. And I had bosses that were telling me what to do and I would go out and I would do it and I would make sales. And it's like, man, this is, this is great. This is too good. Yeah. yeah this is all I have to do. Okay. Right. Fantastic. And things were going really, really well. Everything was, was moving along. And then all of a sudden 2007, 2008 roll around. And I was listening to what my boss said. I was doing everything he told me to do and transactions weren't closing. Right. Things weren't happening. Clients were no longer interested. Clients were getting foreclosed on. Clients were upside down. Adjustable rate mortgages were spiking. And so all these things, I was still doing everything I was supposed to do, but my business was going down. My, uh, my commissions were going down. My income was going down. And that's when I realized, hey, I'm, I'm going to have to work through this. I'm going to have to figure it out. I'm going to have to out prospect, prospect right. my way out of it. But that's when I realized, okay, it's not always rainbows and unicorns in this <laughs> industry. And it's probably not all rainbows and unicorns in any industry. Right. Um, so I would think through for listeners out there, if you're a doctor, you probably have some ups and downs. If you're an attorney, you probably have some ups and downs. Maybe you're in a really stable job. And, and I guess maybe one thing I could think of is maybe you work for the government, for the mm -hmm. state, right? And you have a really defined role that's really low risk and you work at the... I don't know, the the county recorder's office, right? And there's right. always going to be a need for that. And there's probably never going to be layoffs. But, and that would be a really low risk job. 
but maybe you have a job where you own your own business right. and you're responsible for prospecting. You're responsible for bringing in the business. You're responsible for, for fulfilling the orders. Maybe that's a high-risk business. And are you somewhere in between? And how does that play out? If you're in a high-risk business, should you be risking all of your assets, whether it's in stocks, bonds, whatever. And I think what helped me realize that is I saw guys that were doing great in the mortgage industry and had levered up and bought a bunch of real estate. And all of a sudden they didn't have any way to make those monthly payments and they started losing properties. Right. And fortunately that didn't happen to me. We, we never had any late payments. We we handled all of our business, but there were some stressful days and nights for sure. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's made me a little bit more... Um, risk averse Cautious, and kind of yeah. open my eyes to, Hey, you know what? Things are not always going to be great. They might that's be right. great right now, but they're not always going to be. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting because a lot of the people that I think I've seen the last, uh, 10 years in Denver, you know, I started investing, I think in 2008. So we got lucky and started investing in the downturn, but it's almost like you got into 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, everything's going up every year, six to eight, 10% year over year. And you're kind of like, man, I've, you know, you kind of, you fall into this uh, trap where it's like, I'm just never going to lose money, right. you know? And it takes something like a pandemic, a downturn, a bust, some kind of recession to like open your eyes again and make you realize, hey, no, I need to be cautious. I need to be careful. Mm -hmm. I need to be disciplined. I think the key you know, that I always tell you, you got to stay disciplined. No matter how much money you see other people making, how successful people seem to be, you know, during during an upswing. So um, I thought that was really great. I, I just want to, I think... Uh, summarize what, what you just said, because I think it's another, a lot of truth there is if you're in a government position, so any government agency, entity, department, that's, that would be considered low risk yeah. where you're going to be up, you know, in an upswing or like a major boom or a downturn, you're going to have a paycheck. Yep. So then, you know, people in those positions, W2, right. They probably have really good insurance. Yep. So they can count on that paycheck. Now, if they want to get into real estate, they should probably look at something medium to higher risk. Yeah. And not to say that they should be just like playing roulette in the market, but they could probably look at a little bit more risk, yeah. right? Maybe some development plays, maybe some, you know, things like that, that maybe yield, you know, I think in, in your chapter, you talked about, you look at 7% cap rates. So maybe someone with a government job is maybe looking at eight to 12, yeah. right? Because they can take a little bit more risk because they have the stability. And then you have on the other side of the spectrum, your sole proprietors, your entrepreneurs, people like yourself, 100% commission. And those people need to be looking at medium to low risk. Yeah. And I think that's a great, you know, I almost like need to put up a graph or something. That's like so, so basic. But I think that's really where people need to start is first of all, have the self-awareness to say, hey, where do I put my primary income? Where, which, what side of the spectrum does it fall on? Right. And then they, they figure that out. And then from there, they can go identify, okay, because my primary income is here, now I can go look at investments in this in this range. Right. And I think that was that was one of the things I really enjoyed about your chapters. You nice. identified that early on. And I don't think I've I've never personally really thought about my own income like that. Yeah. And so me reading through your chapter, I thought that was really well, well, well thought out. You see it happen because hey, you're in a high risk business and you're like, oh, I'm super comfortable with risk. I'm gonna go do this development deal that's super risky. Right. Now all of a sudden you're way, way high risk and you don't have anything offsetting it. Yeah, right? You're like doubling down. You hit yeah. like a, a speed bump and you lose everything. Right. You don't want to do that. That's if you've right. already got high risk in one area, it needs to be balanced off with with low risk. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and what's nice about real estate is medium to low risk is still not it's still a above market return right you know, way better than a cd way better than a money market i mean 
you know, I think uh, Warren Buffett's average like eight or nine percent compounded year over year. So if you know your real estate, you're talking about seven percent. So if that's compounded year yeah. over year, you're going to be in 20 years in a really in a really healthy spot. So I, I thought that was a great way to start. So after you identify, you know, your your primary income and then figure out the investment, uh, you know, kind of where you want to be on the spectrum. Walk me through how you're allocating from stock, bonds, and real estate. Yeah. Just like high level, how are you looking at that? Yeah. So, you know, I think anybody that tells you there's only one way to make money is probably selling you something. And so for me, <laughs> I don't believe there's only one way to make money. I know people that invest only in bonds and they do great. I know people that invest only in the stocks, they do great. I know people that only invest in real estate, they do great. For me, I want to have a little bit of everything. And so I'm not an expert in stocks and bonds. I do believe I'm an expert in real estate, but not in all real estate. There's certainly still some things I could learn. Um, but I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket. The same just goes back to the risk. I don't want to have all my risk in one category. So I spread it out. My wife and I take a pretty measured approach that, again, it's commission-based. So we don't say, hey, we're going to put $500 into savings and $300 into this. It's all based on percentage basis because right. my income goes up and down. Fortunately, my wife is super stable. Her her job is, is uh, very steady, um, but she works in the mortgage industry too. So she's got some some risk associated. But um, so we look at it and we take, all right, X number of percentage. I think it's 10% goes towards savings. 10% goes towards 401k. Uh, 5% goes into stocks and bonds into a managed account. And then, uh, you know, whatever remaining percentage goes over here to invest in real estate. And when that builds up to a point that we've got enough for a down payment, or, you know, we're going to use our HELOC, we're going to take that money and go buy the next real estate property. And at no point do we let those categories um, bleed over from one to the other. We don't take money out of stocks and bonds to buy real estate. Right. Once it's once that money is deposited, it's really there. Now, we might allocate it differently, right? We've got money in stocks and bonds. And recently, our investment guy called and he said, hey, I think the market's getting a little bit overvalued. We're going to move some money out of stocks into bonds. Great. That's the whole reason I pay that guy. The same way that I hire a real estate agent to make sure I'm getting a good deal. He's my professional who's going out and making sure we get a good deal on that allocation of money that's over there. Um, so I think we've just thought through, look, we don't want to have everything all in one basket. And some people might look at it and say, well, hey, you've got life insurance. That's pretty pretty low return. Yeah, it is. But you know what? It's really safe. It right. does. It can't go down in value. Does it gain 20% a year? No. It gains like 4% a year, but it doesn't go down. And so that's sort of the, the base of the pyramid, right? And so we've got things laid out, um, I feel, in a really diverse fashion. And so if you look at the the average, are we hitting 10%, 20% per year returns? No, we're probably somewhere in the 7 to 10%. Um, but rule of 72, if you make 7% on your money, it doubles every 10 years. That's right. Uh, I'm fine with that. Yeah. You know? So just to be clear, you're not in the get rich quick scheme. I am not. Okay. No, it. Uh, I think it takes about twenty to forty years to get rich quick. Right. <laughs> and right. Uh, you get know, we're, we're we're somewhere right. in that like eighteen to twenty year period right yeah, now. Like so you know, getting rich quick is difficult. So I, I'm gonna jump in before we move on. Um, do you have like an overall like uh, portfolio allocation go for like hey this percent in stocks, this percent in real estate, this percent in bonds? Um, no, I don't. That's a fair question. And no, we do track it. And um, no. So, you know, you'll see in my experience, generally recently, real estate has been gaining faster, um, which means that we should probably be putting more money into stocks and bonds so that you keep that same allocation. Yeah. But no, we don't do that. We continue to just put the X number of percentage, you know, from each check into those accounts. And then uh, when that one account gets to where it needs to be, great, we buy the next property. I asked because I'm kind of, I was looking at my numbers uh, 
actually right after the pandemic, so about two months ago, I started looking. Let me just, hey, reassess everything, make sure everything's good. There's no short ends here. And um, I just, I, I, I have a harder time putting that same percent in the stock market, keeping like the same asset allocation, because mm-hmm. I'm like, it is very highly valued. And plus, they, they, a lot of these companies, they run their businesses very poorly. Like, great, yep. all the profits they've out the last 10 years, half of them or whatever percents from like the government bailout 10 years ago. Right. And now all these dudes are getting bailouts again. Yep. And I have a very fundamental issue with that. Yeah. And I would say, you know, if you looked at it from a true mathematical standpoint, do I have too much real estate? Probably. But you know what? It's doing well. And um, I trust the guy managing it, which is me. And I don't have a lot of uh, things that I don't know about it, like stocks, bonds, right? You could read a prospectus and I don't understand any of the words in there. Maybe the title and the date, right? right? Um, If you could even read the whole thing. If I could read the whole thing, you know, so so if you were to look at it, yeah, maybe I'm too highly, highly invested in real estate, but not by a long shot. So, so no, I don't rebalance it, but I, yeah. I feel comfortable. It's hard, like you said, when you're not betting on yourself, because being an entrepreneur, obviously that's proven to be a good decision for yeah. you and your wife. And then that's the thing I struggle with is, you know, why don't I just keep in, investing in myself, which is me as the operator versus putting it in the stock market where I'm betting on some guy I don't even know that who, you know, I don't know where his, you know, our agenda and our interests may not be fully aligned. Yeah. So I think that's interesting, at least have a small allocation, but you know, like you said, you have a competitive advantage when it comes to real estate. Mm-hmm. You probably have a massive advantage over the market, understanding Denver, pricing, et cetera, because of all the deals that you see yeah. from your primary job. So I, I I think I share that same sentiment. It's to be disciplined with putting the same amount of money every month in the stock market for me has been really difficult just because I look at it and I'm like, I don't really have a competitive advantage in that. Yep. I get, I get the, uh, the logic behind it and the reasoning mm-hmm. that it's good to be diversified. But then when I step back and like let my competitive juices take over, it's like, and I just need to focus on what I know I can beat the next guy at, yep. which is which is real estate. I want to touch on that because I think you're exactly right. Because I don't have a competitive advantage in the stock market, but you know what I do have? A guy that has a competitive advantage. Right. So I actually hired a, a financial advisor um, who was referred over to me. I, I was referred to him. And um, when the market had gone down about, I don't know, 60 days ago, the market bottomed out. I think it lost about 30%. That's right. He manages our account actively. We lost 9%. And so nobody ever wants to say, hey, I lost 9%, but we didn't lose the 30% that everybody else lost, right? right? So he manages that and he is very active in maintaining that. And one of the things that he does is he's compensated based on how the the portfolio grows. Mm. And so he's really smart in the way that he structured his practice because it gets our interests aligned. That's cool. The better my portfolio does, the better he does. And so... you're exactly right that it, if it were just me putting money in the stock market, I'd be pretty nervous about it. Right. That's why, just like I always recommend everybody has a real estate agent, a property manager, I hired a professional and I say, all right, I'm going to give you X number of percentage of my check every week or two right. weeks. Um, and then he knows that he's responsible to beat the market. And so that's actually given me a sense of comfort that I'm not an expert, but I have someone who is. Um, that's well said. Yeah. It's hard to, I haven't really looked into that, but I think, I think that that guy is rare because most of the guys that are doing fund management or securities management or equities, whatever you want to call it, their interests aren't fully aligned because it's basically just the amount of money in there. They get paid a percentage, whether it goes up or down. Right. So to find someone that your interests are aligned where the better they perform, the more money they make, obviously that's, that's ideal. So that's uh, a kudos to you. You found the the one guy in the market that (laughs) does things the right way. So I want to touch on, so 2019, you talked about your real estate investment criteria. You had seven cap. You had some other, you know, uh, details alongside that. Has it changed in 2020, given what's happened the last 60, 90 days? 
Yeah. So for those that haven't read the book, my investment criteria, I try to boil it down to three points. I want something inside the C470 loop because if I go outside of the Denver metro area, my ankle bracelet goes off because I don't know anything about those markets. <laughs> um, inside the C470 loop, I want a 7% cap rate or better. And I want something turnkey. Now for me, turnkey, I described as $5,000 worth of work or less. So if it needs new paint carpet, no problem. My property manager can do that. But if it needs a total gut overhaul, that's not me. My, my time is better served doing loans and, and doing podcasts with you guys. Um, so to answer your question, has that changed? No. What I will say is when I wrote this book and talking about 2019, I've gotten a little bit loose on some of those. For the most obvious one would be cap rate. I bought a couple properties last year and one of them uh, was a 6.5 cap. Right now, looking at it, is it a seven cap? No, I should strike through it. But you know what I really liked about it? I liked the location. It needed very little work. Um, and I felt there was appreciation upside, which is not part of my three criteria, mm -hmm. but it was enough compensating factors for me to say, you know what, I can get a little bit into the gray area on this metric because I feel really positive on these other metrics. And moving into the pandemic uh, or moving out of the pandemic, no, I would not say that's changed at all because my strategy, frankly, is a 20-year strategy and I'm not going to let 45 or 60 or 90 days derail that. Um, so if new properties come up, anybody listening, watching, you have a seven cap inside the C470 loop with less than $5,000 of renovation, call me because I want to look at it. Um, and no, I don't think this is going to change that at all. Now with all the loans and the activity that you're seeing on a daily basis, I mean, in my world, everyone sees a pandemic, sees a stock market dropping 30%, as you just described. And then in their mind, they're like, oh man, there's going to be all kinds of deals out there. So what kind of things are you seeing in the Denver market? And I guess that's, you know, the, the second phase of that is, do you think you can get better than a seven cap right now? Or do you think you're still going to have to be flexible that you might have to be able to take a 6.4, 6.5, 6.6, because Denver is just growing like crazy and there's a lot of demand. Yeah. I don't think you're going to see a massive wave of foreclosures and short sales. A lot of people are out there, oh, I'm waiting for the market to drop <laughs> right. 20% and I'm <laughs> I'm locked and loaded, ready right. to go. I'm like, well, you're going to wait a long time. Right. Because you know what? We still have a ton of people moving here. We have a historically low inventory. Right. We're still in a massive housing shortage, almost a crisis, right? We have a, we have a health crisis. We almost have a, a housing crisis at the same time. So let's say you get double the amount of homes on the market. Um, that's still not going to be enough to meet existing demand. Now, I think you might find a couple of little one-offs here and there. If you're watching carefully, you might see um, a seller that's in distress and you might be able to get three, five, 7% off but I don't think you're going to see the market as a whole decline 10, 15, 20%. I just don't see it. There's too many people that still want to buy. Right. Um, you might see a little one-off here and there. You might get something where somebody's like, man, I just really want to get rid of this property. I'll give you $10,000 off the price. Um, and I think you'll see those and we will hear about those stories, but it'll all be anecdotal evidence of people that are just doing enough transactions. Mm -hmm. And we'll probably have some on the podcast. Holy cow, we have this one great example but you're going to miss that there was a hundred others that were just regular deals. And mm -hmm. we'll all get focused on this one great example and forget about the other 100 that were just regular. So my focus every day is I want to look for the hundred deals that are regular because I don't have time to go out and fish and catch that one whale, that one albatross. Yeah. Albatross. Right. Yes. I love that. Um, so no, I don't think there's going to be a massive change in the market. We'll we'll hear a few examples. We'll hear a year from now, we'll talk about, man, remember that one transaction that so-and-so got? <laughs> but the reality is the wealth will be built by the people that do the 100 regular deals. That's well said. So in 
that your chapter, you mentioned two deals you did last year. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear, you know, kind of your, you know, the, I'll add some color to those for people listening, but particularly I'm interested to hear, you know, was it just a coincidence? They were both inside of an HOA in their condos. Is that something that you prefer? And if so, why? Or did it just happen to be ironic that the two deals you did last year were condos with HOAs? Um, that is something I prefer. Actually, I do all the properties that I own are condos, including my house. Well, it's a townhouse, but uh, everything that I have is inside of a homeowners association. Wow. And what I like about it is the price versus rent spread is very tight. What I mean by that is anybody that's listening to the podcast, you know I'm a big fan of GRM. You can get really good rents as compared to the purchase price. Right. And I always like to use Section 8 as an example. Let's say I have a three-bedroom home in Denver, cost me $400,000. Well, Section 8 three-bedroom rent is $1,850 a month. If I have a three-bedroom condo in Denver, three-bedroom, cost me $240,000. What's the Section 8 rent for a three-bedroom condo? I'm guessing $1,850. Yep, it's the exact same. All right. Now, you might get a little bit if you're on fair market rents and not Section 8. Maybe people will pay a little bit of a premium for a yard to have a a front yard, a a, a garage, et cetera. That's great. But for my purposes, I look at what is the path of least resistance to get the lowest price property compared to the highest price rent and... If I have a homeowners association, I don't have to worry about the exterior. I don't have to worry about the roof. I don't have to worry about snow removal. I don't have to worry about landscaping. It makes it a very passive investment. Granted, I have a property manager, so they would be the ones to have to deal with all that, but it's even more passive for the property manager. And guess what? I'm sure she's probably listening. I hope my property manager loves me because I put really, really easy to manage properties into her portfolio so that it's very simple for her. If I show up and say, hey, I've got XYZ property. Do you want this? Yeah, I sure do because she doesn't have to deal with some of the extra things. And so for us, all of our properties are condos in homeowners associations for those reasons. So it's very specific. So that's not by accident that those are the two properties you did. That's interesting because yeah, the few times that I've purchased properties with an HOA, I've absolutely hated it. Yeah. Just because, you know, when you're doing construction and you're trying to juice rents or, you know, I, I think primarily it goes down to construction if you want to add, you know, another amenity and just having to go through the, the hoops of submitting documents and getting HOA approval. It's like, listen, I don't need your approval for me to spend more money to make the property worth more. That's just been my personal experience, but I see, and I kind of see a parallel. It's kind of going back to because your primary job, you know, you get such a great return on your time you want your investments to be as simple as possible right? and have and just set up passively and the HOA kind of adds to that. So I think that's kind of another interesting point for people to understand is, you know, you really need to identify and nail down your primary source of income and that should set up basically everything else you do because even the deals you're looking at kind of add to just the simplicity and and uh, just making it as passive as possible. Yep. And you, you know? guys have two very different investing strategies. Exactly. You're, you're, you want to be passive and you're, you're buy and hold and you're in there doing, I mean, construction and redevelopment on pretty much right. every single property that you buy. Like you're at a job site, what, five days a week? Yeah, I used to be. I'm less now, but yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, 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 no, we're very, yeah. we're very, yeah, we were, we were very involved in the properties. Yeah. And so, um, but I, I think that's compelling for people out there that have, you know, depending on where they fall in the risk and volatility spectrum of their primary source of income and their job. And obviously, if they can get the same return you get on your time, then they should be looking at the same strategy. Right. I think that's a really good point for people out there to really chew on is uh, is how much time, what's the return on their time in their primary job? So maybe I don't want to go do that like 
do your own remodel and fix up the bathroom at this right. new it's like you keep it under 5000 with an HOA and you're pretty much guaranteed to never have to think about it again exactly versus oh, I got to go you know I'm going to go remodel this bathroom with my wife and put it on Instagram to look cool I don't do even any though of they that. get a great return on their time yeah. at their primary job that's probably not that uh, actually costs you money if I were to right. do something like that so what you mentioned I love it you're talking about homeowners associations you hate them cuz you're doing construction you got to do this removing this wall I don't have any of those challenges. Right. You know why? Because I'm not doing any of that. That's right. Right? I'm just like, okay, needs paint, carpet. They're not going to say anything about that. Paint, carpet, put the tenant in there. Oh, there's a screen missing. Okay, put that on there. <laughs> right. Tune up the furnace. Good to go. Um, and the property manager handles all that. Literally, once I close on the property, I invest maybe 15 minutes of time to drive to the property manager and hand them the keys. Right. And then that's it. Within yeah. 45 days, they've got it fixed up and I'm getting a, a check or a direct deposit. And that's... That's what I look for. And one of the great things I love about this book, that's what works for me. Might not work yeah. for you. Maybe um, maybe somebody out there is a contractor. They're like, well, hey, I have all these skills. I know how to renovate a property. Perfect. That's right. You should do that. I don't know how to change a light bulb, <laughs> right. right? So right. I focus on what I'm really good at and my investing strategy then is parallel to that. Because if I, could I get the Home Depot book and learn how to do that <laughs> stuff? Probably. Is it a good return? No way. Right. You know. So I focus on what I'm good at and let other professionals that I've hired help me grow in the areas that they're good at. Yeah, so to summarize, for those people out there that are trying to, because I think there's a lot of people that I hear from that are just getting started. They're like, how could I work together with you or how could I add value? And it sounds like for you, if people are out there listening, they're like, hey, Joe, how could I add value? How could I work with you? How could I learn from you? It'd be find me a condo mm -hmm. and a really solid HOA inside the C470 loop that's a seven cap or better and they'll be able to do some kind of transaction with you. Absolutely. Right? I would I would do that all day long. And two, I'm open to single families and uh, duplexes. I just don't see they're generating a seven cap right now. That's right. Right? So I would be open to that, but most of the ones that come across my desk are four, four and a half, maybe a five cap. I'm like, eh, I'll just wait for the next condo to Or they need along. more than $5,000. Right. Or they yeah. need, yeah, 10, 20, home, 30, $35,000. I mean, yeah, you could paint the entire house for more than 5,000. So. Yep, exactly. So they need a lot of work. Um, so yeah, you're spot on. I'm open to those to those things. Um, and what those metrics hit right now are condos inside C470. That's good. Yeah. So what, and you know, and I, I'm guessing we have to wrap up here. I could sit here all day. I think this is really interesting, but I'm guessing <laughs> we all have other places we need to go. This is great. To get back to our primary source of income. But um, what's the, what would be the punchline or the takeaway for people out there listening that are beginners? You know, what would be your advice as we're pretty much halfway through 2020 now, which sounds crazy. Yeah. You know, and they're, you know, what are the, what can they do to put themselves in a position to be investing and making progress on their own uh, real estate investing. Yeah. So I talk to people all the time and I meet with people. They're like, man, I want to buy 10 properties because I want some passive cash flow. <laughs> I say, fantastic. You know, how many properties do you have right now? I don't have any right now, but I want to try and have six before the end of the year. Okay. That's great. I'm all for having goals. I'm all for having big goals, but you know what? You don't have to have six properties in one year. That's a full-time job in and of itself to buy that many properties. Let's just start with one. Right. Just buy one property. You buy one property a year. Before you know it, you're going to have two, three, five, seven properties. That gives you time to get the property, save up for the down payment for the next one, put the tenant in there, save up the rents to put in for your down payment for the next one. Um, so that's what I would encourage people. Don't try and get focused on, hey, I have to build this huge portfolio. You know what? Just buy one property a year. Just one. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to be crazy. Doesn't have to be the greatest deal of the, in the world. Just one property. And that's that's what I focus on. I'm not looking to hit these grand slam deals that, oh my God, did you hear how he made $300,000 on that flip? 
nope, you know what? You're never going to see any of my transactions on, you know, HGTV. <laughs> if I had my own HGTV show, it'd be the most boring thing ever. It's like, oh, you bought a property and let it sit there for 20 years, you know, and now it generates this much money. Nobody would watch. But you know what? It makes a lot of money and it generates passive wealth. So buy one property, wait a while, and then buy another one. That's my advice. It's really good stuff. Chris, I, I'm sorry I hijacked this conversation. No, I was just really interested in Joe's story, but um, I've actually enjoyed feel free it. And fire like, away. Right? No, if you got more questions, go for it. We got we got like eight minutes left. Oh, we do have eight minutes. Yeah. Oh man. So one of the other questions I did have since he just gave me the green light was, um, you mentioned both of the properties you purchased cash. Mm-hmm. So walk me through, you know, because I live in a leverage world mm-hmm. where I'm trying to buy as many properties as I can and they're larger multifamily acquisitions, right? Mm-hmm. So when I'm buying a five or $10 million apartment complex, you know, I'm not bringing $10 million cash. First of, of all, that'd just be a bad use of That's cash a, right. and $10 million laying around. Not a lot of people have that. Sure. But walk me through what is, you know, why are you doing that versus using leverage and you're a loan officer? What, you know? Yeah, it just comes back again to keeping my monthly recurring expenses as low as possible because yeah, things are great right now, but things aren't always going to be great. There's going to be a time when things are going to roll around that we're going to have 40,000 homes on the market and it's things are going to sit for 90 days before right. we can sell them and we're going to have higher vacancy and I don't want to be uh, saddled with you know high debts that I've got to make really high monthly payments on these properties um, and so what we do is we use our home equity line of credit we pay cash for the properties then we work by making extra payments to pay that down once that gets down to a level that we can afford the next property we draw on that home equity line of credit and buy the next one um, so it's really more than anything it's just risk risk mitigation Okay, so it's not so you're taking a line of credit, mm-hmm. paying cash for the property, and then the rent's going to pay down that line of credit. So you're saving a lot of money on interest. Correct. Can you walk people through that? Because I know it's a, it's kind of an advanced move. Yeah. We don't have a chart here to kind yeah. of show them how much less in interest they're paying. Yeah. But I've heard other people talk about it. Can you walk people through? Because yeah. I think that's a really brilliant move. Yeah. So a home equity line of credit, um, for those of you that don't know, it's basically just a big credit card, right? right? It's a big credit card with foreclosure rights. If you don't make payments on it, (laughs) they can foreclose on your house. But that's all it is, big credit card. And you draw out, let's say you're buying a $200,000 property. You draw out $200,000 and you go to the title company, you've paid cash. Now, in their world, it seems like you're paying cash because there's no lien, there's no debt associated with that property, but there is still debt. There's debt over here on the house, right? right? And so now you take those rents from that property. Let's say it cash flows, let's just call it $1,000 a month. That's right. You take that and you pay that back towards that home equity line. And what's your HELOC? So what would an interest payment roughly be? If you take out 200,000, like on one of your examples, it was Mm 192,000. So you took out $200,000 from a line of credit. Your line of credit's what, 5%? Uh, it's like four and a half. Four and a half. Yeah. So your payment on that monthly is what, four or $500? Yeah, about that. Uh, yeah, r- really close to that. Yeah, yeah so, so it's like four hundred bucks. Okay, yeah, let's call it 500 Okay, let's call it 500 So you're making, so, the, so you're paying $500 a month yep. to your HELOC, yep. right? And that's and just the interest. That's just the interest only. Mm-hmm. So what's, you know, so maybe you can educate people on interest only versus inter- interest plus principal. What's the difference? Yeah, so a home equity line of credits, just like your credit card, you only have to make that interest payment. So that $500, I've taken 200000 out, you pay that $500 interest, the principal the next month is still 200000 You have to be disciplined to make extra payments and pay that down. So what we would do is pay $1,000 of the cash flow towards that, right? So, so you take that, the entire rent payment. So you're not taking, so just to be clear, 
they pay, I think one of them, the rent was $2,000, right? Yep. So you have to pay HOA, you have to pay your property manager, tax, you have to, taxes, insurance, all that stuff. And you're left with 1200 I think you said. Yep. So you have $1,200. So you're not taking it and buying shoes and going on vacation. No. You're taking the $1,200 and putting the whole thing against the HELOC, exactly. the credit card, yep. right? So now you're paying the principal plus interest. Exactly. So now you owe the next month basically $198,000 yeah, roughly. exactly. It goes down. So every month you're paying that thing down. Yep. Exactly. So every month we're paying that thing down. Now, one of the things that makes this work is we've got several properties, right? right? And we're taking all the cash flow from those. You're right, and you're right. It's the net cash flow after paying yeah. the HOA miscellaneous stuff. So now we're paying maybe $5,000 back towards this HELOC. 500 bucks of interest, $4,500 paying down the principal. Right. The next month, that interest, instead of being 500, it's $470 because the payments or the principal is a little lower. And so now you get a little bit more and you do that every single month until your principal balance has decreased enough that you've got enough value left or enough uh, ability to draw on that to go buy your next property. So you're you're aggressively paying down the HELOC or the credit card, Mm -hmm. right? So walk me through... Because I've seen I've seen it on different charts, but basically, if you just did that, you could basically pay off that property in a lot shorter time than if you did an, a regular fifteen or thirty year mortgage. Can you talk? Yeah, absolutely. To that? And it's just because you're making additional principal payments, whereas if you have a mortgage like what you get with me, that has a structured amortization, right? right? So you make every single payment. A portion goes towards principal, a portion goes towards interest, and you work down that amortization curve over fifteen or thirty years. Right. That home equity line of credit. Instead of going down on a curve, it basically has interest that's fixed. Right. And then once you make a payment, that interest takes a step down, right? Then once you make your next payment, that interest takes a step down until you get the principal all the way down to zero and that interest is down to zero. And that works really, really well if and only if you're disciplined enough to make the payments. That's right. Because it is a variable rate. And it can change at some point in the future. So most HELOCs have a 10-year draw period and then a 10-year repayment period. So if I take out 200,000 and I just pay 500 bucks a month and you hit the nail on the head, I'm going out and buying shoes and living my life, whatever, with that cash flow, at some point, the bank is going to say, okay, now you got to start paying principal and interest. (laughs) And now I have a 10-year loan. Yeah, Yeah, they want their money back. Now I got to pay really big payments to pay that down over. Yeah, and at that point, you could be in a downturn and then that's when people get in trouble. Exactly. So, I, I mean, I think that that's really, really interesting. And I think it goes back to, you know, because you are in a high risk job, very volatile, 100% commission, you're going to be very conservative with your investments. Yep. And instead of using that on an extra vacation or a nicer car or a bigger house, you're just paying down the HELOC aggressively, which ultimately is giving you that property. It'll be free and clear a lot faster. That's exactly right. And then guess what? I go buy another one and I've got the cash flow from this property I already have plus the cash flow from the new house, I can pay the HELOC down even faster on the right. next one. And then it just accelerates. It's like a flywheel. Right. You know, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's easier to make money once you have money. That's so right. that mm-hmm. first property is the hardest one to buy. That's right. But then when you get the second one, you get double the cash flow. When you get the third one, you have triple the cash flow. So that's why my piece of advice to everyone, buy your first property. Don't try to buy 10. Don't try to buy eight this year. Just buy one. The next year, buy one. The next yeah. year, buy one. It doesn't, they will add up very, very quickly. Just make one good decision and the next ones will compound on that. Yeah. Absolutely. I love that. I think that's really good advice. And I think that those are, those. that's a process and a system that people can just, I think your everyday person out there with a W-2 job, you know, regardless of, you know, what industry it's in can really apply that. You yeah. know, if you're, if you're disciplined, 
you own a home, you can take out a HELOC. The nice thing is if you live in Denver, most likely you, your home is appreciated over the last couple of years. Yep. There is going to be equity there. You can take out the HELOC or the credit card, go use that to buy an investment property and do what you just said. Yep. And that's a very simple way of getting started that still is, is risk adverse. Yep. And one important point, that HELOC is variable. So some people, I ask a lot of people, would you ever use a credit card to buy a house? And some people say, well, no, I would never do that. Then you shouldn't use a HELOC because that's all a HELOC is, is a really big credit card. Low interest credit card. Yeah, it's low a low interest. interest credit card. So if you're uncomfortable doing that, that's where we need to talk about a regular 30-year fixed rate mortgage and you put down your 15, 20, 25%, right? So while it is risk averse because I pay it down rapidly, there's still a certain amount of risk to it because interest rates could increase and that's totally outside of my control. If you're undi- I think the, the punchline is if you're undisciplined with the rents, yeah. then that's where it becomes risky. But that's if you're right. disciplined, then I think, the, it becomes less risky. Absolutely. And it actually becomes more conservative because you're paying down. If you're taking the entire rent and you're putting it towards the payment, you're actually being more conservative than if you had a 30-year mortgage because you're paying more of the principal every month. That's a good point. What I like about your strategy is just it's automated and it's simple. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I like I like my investing all be rules. Just I invest here, invest here, invest here. It's all a logic tree. Mm-hmm. And it's, it keeps it simple. Because like you said, yeah. When my emotion gets involved with stuff for investing, it's not good. I, yeah. I, I, I used to day trade and right. yeah. Mm. I did not have a good track record with that. Not I good. think what I like, Joe, is that, you know, if you had a daughter in high school or a son in high school, or you could just leave it to your wife, like if something happened to you, God forbid, right. um, they could execute on that plan. I think that's part of some of the things that I think about that concern me about kind of my business is that because of the complexity of it and all the moving parts, it's not something that like my wife could execute on if something happened to me. Right. But with what you're doing and with what you, you know, you just laid out, it's something that she could carry on, right. you know, if you were, if you were not in the picture. So that's, and I think there's a lot of value there. Yeah. I just, I know we're wrapping up and not to pick on you, yeah. but in your investing, that's a job, right? Right. It requires you to be there to run it. Right. Now I have a job too. But in my investing, it's truly passive. Right. If I were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, my wife could call all of our property managers and guess what? Rents are still going to come in. She would be okay. She doesn't have to try and figure out, all right, how do we unwind this? That's right. Right? Now, now she probably wouldn't want to run my mortgage business. We'd have a whole other challenge there, right? But I've tried to separate those two that we have something passive versus something that's active. Yeah. Um, and it's it's made me really happy. And a lot of my investors that do fix and flips and, you know, have full-time, you know, construction companies and renovations, they also look for, hey, I got to get one passive property this year. Right. And they kind of set it off to the side that that's the passive investment. We're not yep. going to mess with it. And then they still do all the, you know, yeah. cool, fun things that you do, the developments and all this other stuff, but they have these passive ones that they push off to the side. And that's, that's kind of the same thing that I try to do is have those passive investments investments because that in my mind is really an investment that's right all right well we are getting up against the clock here guys um any final thoughts joe that you want to leave with us that no did i get a chance to answer thank you guys so much you know anybody out there listening would love to chat about this stuff if you ever have questions need help on a loan that's the primary thing (laughs) that i do uh because my investing is really boring just buy a property and and keep it um but would love to chat about this stuff anytime just really appreciate uh getting to spend a little bit of time with you too terrence yeah that was really good man i appreciate it yeah i was uh i learned a lot yeah well thank you guys so this will be the first of hopefully a lot of interviews with the uh, contributors in the book from 2020 so be, be on the lookout for those. And as a reminder out there, anyone that wants to write a chapter for the next 2021 book, please do so. It's great information. You get to network. So everyone, thank you. Thank you.